So Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to any, anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's just pray for Greg as he brings up God's word to us. Lord, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you for this great picture of the, the first church. Uh, and we pray that um, as Greg speaks to us, we would have ears to hear what he has to say to us, uh, what you have to say to us through Greg. Uh, encourage us, uphold us, rebuke us and challenge us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yes, as Russ said, um, this section in Acts is basically this, Acts is the story of the first church and how the church started growing and, and multiplying super quickly. Um, basically catalogs a movement. And movements sometimes come from unexpected places. Like, do you know um, how Virgin Records started? Does anyone know the story of how Virgin Records started? Oh, good, let me tell you. Um, well, uh, Virgin Records, if you don't know, it's a, a label. They have artists like um, David Bowie, uh, Janet Jackson, Sex Pistols, Rolling Stones, Spice Girls, The Who. Now, the Spice Girls, who I believe had already broken up before Will Tyndall was born. Um, uh, I mean, they have the, yeah, they're amazing, kind of amazing people on their roster. Well, Richard Branson, if you, I don't know if you've heard about him. Whoa. There we go, Richard Branson. Um, he's an entrepreneur kind of guy, but this was his first, his first foray into, into business. He grew up during the time of the Vietnam War. Uh, he was about 19 years old, and he wanted to protest against it. And the thing that he thought to do was to kind of grow awareness. So he created a magazine that was going to talk about uh, the atrocities of the Vietnam War, do interviews, have like celebrities, talk about politics, things like that. And a little side project to that kind of weirdish kind of project was selling music. He talked to lots of artists and labels and uh, had really good negotiating skills to get the cost of music really low. So he would sell music on the side as well as like having these kind of magazines going on. The music that he wanted to sell, as he put it, was music that wasn't boring, typical protest stuff. So he got people like the Rolling Stones, which was kind of a big deal to get. It's like, I don't know, big massive, big massive band. So this thing started to catch on one day and a large retailer bought a load of records from him. Um, yes, records that are made from vinyl the kind that exists in time and space, a thing you can hold with your hand. This is an old guy talking. Uh, and he drove a lorry from England to Belgium because there's a big, huge order to, to, that he needed to get to Belgium. But in France, he got stopped because he didn't have the right kind of export paperwork or something. I'm not sure what the things were. So he, got, turn, he had to turn around and go back to the UK. So when he was in England, he said, well, it's cheaper for me to like just sell things here in England. Why am I going? Why am I driving Lori all the way to Belgium? So he sold all those records in England. The problem was he already got the money and the contract and stuff from the buyer in Belgium. So there was this whole like massive thing, and there eventually he was like in criminal court, and he had got a fine of like ten thousand pounds. So he's like nineteen years old, starting this kind of crazy business, and then he has a fine of, of ten thousand pounds that he had to borrow money to pay back. Uh, so in order to pay back the money, this is him telling the story. He's like, I thought to myself, well, I'm going to have to sell a lot more records now to pay back the 10000 because basically he was just breaking even every year. He's like, so I guess maybe I have to start maybe opening up some record stores and like sell some records through there. So he opened up a few Virgin Record stores, and I think that probably turned out pretty good for him. 
But who would have thought that like a 19-year-old with this weird indie magazine selling music on the side who's like having to pay off a fine, that that would be the start to something, the global version records label. Like movements sometimes come from unexpected places. And the same is true of the early church. The first church in the book of Acts was in Jerusalem, and nobody thought that, that w- they would spark a worldwide movement spanning millennia, covering the globe, but that's just what happened. Much like Branson, the early church didn't start with an explosion. It wasn't like, oh, those guys are really going to take off. It was like, when are those guys going to disintegrate? There weren't pyrotechnics. It was very simple. It was basic. It was really average. But God loves to take small things and make them significant things. And of course, it's just what happened with this church. So we're going to look and peer into this small little window that we have, these verses here, 42 through 47. So if you have your Bible or if you have your phone up, um, just, just keep it up because we'll, we'll refer to this back a, a couple times. And this was going on like 2,000 years ago-ish. Uh, Luke, who is the author of Acts, he also wrote the Gospel of Luke, um, is uh, just telling us the story of what it looked like for the early church to begin. Uh, and in this section, we're going to see how the people in the church at Jerusalem were devoted to God, how they were devoted to each other, and how God was in charge of his mission. So let's just talk, we're just going to talk about those three things, devoted to God, devoted to each other, and how God directs his mission. So this first section of being devoted to God. Uh, devoted is a pretty strong word there. It says there in verse 32, they devoted themselves to, and then it lists a bunch of stuff. Uh, to devote is to, uh, to spend a lot of time with, to have something close at hand, to be faithful to something, uh, to persist in something. It's, it's something that you're constantly doing all the time. You're around it all the time. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, in this time, they didn't have the finished version of this Bible. They only had bits and pieces. We have the finished version of the Bible, so we even have more information than they did when they were starting. But that's what they were devoting devoting themselves to. The New Testament are the teachings of of the apostles. And so being devoted to God means being devoted to his word. And his word is basically what he wants us to know about himself. It's how he speaks to us, how he reveals himself to us. So devoted to that. I also said they were devoted to fellowship, which is a very churchy word. You don't just say, I'm going to hang out with my mates and have a little bit of fellowship. Like, that's only a word you use if it's like in a weird kind of, it doesn't have to be a weird church context. But, um, but I think the takeaway here is that the teaching and the devoting themselves to the teaching wasn't done by themselves, wasn't done in a vacuum. It was in a community. They're devoting themselves to each other. Fellowship means a close relationship. It's actually where we get the word that we translate church from. So really, the word fellowship, the word family, the word gathering, this is all where, that word, where the word church comes from. That's why we use the word family so much here. So being devoted to God means devoted to fellowship because the word tells us that we ought to be devoted to fellowship. There are no lone ranger kind of do-it-yourself Christians, or if there are, like that's just not a good way to be, and it's just not how the Bible teaches us to live. So this next one strikes at the heart of Redeemer. They broke bread together. They ate a lot of food. Um, we like our food. We like our lunches as part of basically kind of functionally part of our Sunday worship. And after the service, you are all invited over to our house, a five-minute walk, we'll have a barbecue. If it's not raining, well, we'll have it either way. Um, so devoted to food, that's an easy one. But the question here uh, that some uh, commentators and Bible, Bible scholars will ask is, Luke, when he's writing this, is he referring to breaking a bread as in the Lord's Supper? Or is he referring to breaking a bread as far as like just eating food together? Like, which is it? It's a good question. Um, so the Lord's Supper, Jesus instituted the night before he died. He told his disciples to eat 
and to drink to remember him, to remember what he was going to do for them. And he told them to do it often in order that we would remember how much we need to depend on him. As much as we depend on food, as much as we depend on drink, that's how much we need to depend on Jesus for our life. So is Luke talking about the Lord's Supper or just regular eating? Well, probably the answer is yes, because the way that would work out is you didn't have church buildings, and there's loads of people in these churches. They would meet in their houses, they meet in their homes, much like how we do our Wednesdays or our very first meeting where we had nine people around a table. That's what the church kind of looked like. So it looked like a normal meal um, with the Lord's Supper being a part of it. So it's probably both. So both in the context of an actual meal and the Lord's Supper, God commanded them, uh, or the way the church worked out was to devote themselves to these things. Lastly, what they devoted themselves to was prayer. This meant more than twice a week, more than right before they ate lunch or something like that. They knew that, like the Lord's Supper, if without prayer they couldn't make it through the day. The Bible is where we get to hear God's words to us, and prayer is where we get to speak our words back to him. So those in the church were devoted to God, which meant they were devoted in these four areas. And they were faithful. These were close at hand in their lives. doesn't mean they were perfect, because nobody is. But they persisted in them. They kept on working towards it. And this is what it means to be gospel-formed. We have this little um, saying we like to say about ourselves, we're a gospel-formed family on mission. Being devoted to God in these ways is what it means to be formed by the gospel, by the good news of Jesus. So that's the first section, being devoted to God. Um, The second section um, is being devoted to God means being devoted to each other, because we saw already that being devoted to his word isn't done by ourselves in our own own room by by ourselves. It's done in the context of a family. Um, So let's look at a little bit more of of the things that they shared. Really, being, being devoted to each other, they shared three things. They shared their time, they shared their resources, and they shared their needs. Now look at um, verse 44. All the believers were together. They were together. They were present with each other. That meant uh, they met together to worship. Also, later on, they worshiped every single day in the temple. Now, I'm not saying we should have worship services every single day. Well, that might be for our good. I don't know. I just don't think that'll ever actually really happen. Um, But they were with each other. They were breaking bread in each other's homes. They were eating meals together. They were doing things that looked spiritual and also didn't look spiritual. They were just interacting with each other. And they didn't see their calendar first as an opportunity for stuff to do them for themselves first. They lived as a family. I mean, we all say we want community, we love the idea of a family, but when that begins to erode a bit on our own time or our own calendar, we're like, yeah, I don't know if I like community or family that much because it means I can't stay the same. But these people loved to be with each other. They also had um, everything in common. They shared resources. They gave to anyone in need. Now this isn't uh, like a manifesto for some kind of hippie commune. This isn't like uh, the early church is doing away with the idea of, of private property or personal property. What the early church did was use that concept of personal property, not for themselves first, but for other people. So if they had something and other people didn't and they needed it, then they shared it. That sounds like what a family does. If someone had more of something and someone else needed it, they were devoted to each other, so they'd sacrifice for it. But then lastly, and this is maybe a little bit um, not as obvious from the text, they also shared needs. Because how would you be able to share resources if you never knew people needed those resources? But we like the idea of helping others because we get to play the, the role of the hero. We don't like the idea of saying we need help because we think we have to play the role of helpless. But in a family, there aren't any heroes, there aren't any helpless, they're just members. 
Sharing our needs requires us to sacrifice our pride, and that's often much harder than sacrificing time or money. I know that for myself. But the early church was devoted to each other, so they shared these things, time, resources, and needs. Now, no, also notice um, that they did this in formalized worship, center, worship settings, like going to the temple often together, but also in informal settings. They're eating food together. That doesn't, I mean, people just eating around a table doesn't look spiritual, but it very much is. And both are required for a full experience of church. So if you're not experiencing both of those things, like the formalized worship of getting to do what we do, do like today, singing together, taking the Lord's Supper together, um, learning from the Bible together, if you're, if you're not experiencing that, and if you're not experiencing just normal everyday life of what family is like, then your experience of church is deficient. This is why we say the church is a family, because it's more than an event, it's more than a service. So lastly, what did God do with this devotion to him and to others. Well, if we are devoted to God, and if we are devoted to each other, this is how God directs his mission. The very first thing God, that we read about here is in verse 43, that everyone was filled with awe at the, mighty, at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Everyone in the church was amazed at the signs and wonders the apostles performed. Now, the apostles performed them, but it wasn't like the apostles' power. It wasn't them doing it. It was God doing it through them, and that's what they were in awe about. They were, they were seeing God at work in real life in front of them. And this is what God does. He does signs and he does wonders. And God is still at work in supernatural ways that can only be understood by God being at work. And we're going to hear in a moment as we share, there's signs and wonders of how God has worked in our lives. Now this, I think we often expect it to look like magical or like... Uh, like pixie dust and glitter all over the place, but often it looks very normal and, and average. It, it doesn't look fantastic on the outside, God to do, God working in the way he does. But I think we should really continue to expect to God, for God to work in ways that only God does. There are people who are going to find out what Redeemer is about, and through that, Jesus is going to change their lives. It's already happened. That's, that's happening now. It's going to happen in the future. Secondly, um, what, uh, what God does here is... Uh, he gives favor. Verse 47 says, uh, they're all praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. They were enjoying this, this kind of favor. Now, people, everyone, generally liked basically what they saw, this early church, even though it was weird and this weird kind of thing. They liked how this church lived, weird as it was. They were, these people were devoted to God, were devoted to each other. They took care of the poor. They shared things together. They were a family together. And that was weird to people, but also somewhat weirdly attractive and this is not something that we can control as a church. How will people respond to us? I don't know. That's totally out of our control. And when we start playing to the idea of, of trying to play for people's favor, uh, that leads us down a road where we're either not devoted to God, we're not devoted to others, we're kind of devoted to like, the love of the people. And that's never a good thing for anybody, let alone a church. But others responding well is something that God does. It's something that's in God's hands as he directs his mission. And already through the small things that we're involved with as a church, I mean, we're a super small church, but already the, the reputation that we have in Trollton is um, that it's a good thing. They may not understand what we're about. They may not be interested in what we're about, but they generally like us, which is weird. I mean, we live in a place where if you say you believe in the Bible, that could easily be misinterpreted as saying that you're a homophobic hate monger. That's the kind of place we live in. But that's not the kind of reputation we have. 
Well, first, because we're not those people, hopefully. Um, but secondly, we're involved in, in caring for the community. Now, we can't control whether the community is going to like us or not, and, that, and that's good that we're not in control of that because we can't handle that kind of power. But we are people, through God's grace, who have been seen to care for the people in our neighborhood, for everybody in our neighborhood, and that's good because God cares for everyone in our neighborhood. So this is something we need to continue to be, um, to live lives that are attractive to all, offering as wide of a welcome to our church and to our homes that Jesus offers us. And lastly, uh, what God has done through his mission is he added to their number. The church grew. So everyone liked them, but not everyone joined, though some people did. God directs his mission and will will bring people in who he will change. People... We're saved. People will be saved. Now, this isn't some kind of formula that if we just get it right, be like, oh, if we have like 50% of devoted to God, 49% devoted to, like, if we get that right, like, that means all of a sudden we're like a megachurch tomorrow or something. It's just not how it is because we're not in charge of, of, of that. God's in charge of his mission. And there are lots of other examples in the Old Testament, especially, where God gives commissions to prophets and basically says, you're supposed to preach these good news to these people, and they're not going to listen to it, and then there you go, that's your mission. Yay, who wants to do that? Nobody wants to do that. But we're not in control of how people are going to respond, thankfully. That's not, on our, on our, that's not a burden we have to bear. God works as he's going to. He's directing his mission, not us. So not everyone's going to join in, but I think we're going to find that some will. So we should expect that, or at least we should ask for it. We should work towards it. But one thing we can't expect, we can't ex- cannot expect to see disciples multiplied unless we do these things. There has been no revival, no renewal of the church, no change of community that wasn't preceded by what Acts 2 is talking about here. So regardless of whatever happens, we know we have a responsibility. Now, God's not always going to work in this specific way that we read in these few verses here. But I think what we get from Acts is a general theme of how God likes to work. He loves to take small things and make them significant things. He takes on what's small and makes something out of it. And that's true for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. They were super small. They were insignificant. God made something big from them. It was true of um, when Jesus was teaching and there was a whole crowd that was hungry because he hadn't eaten for days. And the only thing they had to feed them were some loaves and some fish. And Jesus multiplied that and fed everybody. Think of Jesus' own disciples. They were completely clueless, often like working against Jesus in lots of ways. And those are the people that he picked to like build his church, to build this global movement on. That's crazy. The church at Jerusalem that we're reading here, they should have been snuffed out immediately, if, if, you know, given all things. But they weren't. Or even us in our own lives. We know we, when we bring our own lives to Jesus, we are completely insignificant. But he, do, he makes something with that. And God works this way so that there can be no question that it's him at work the entire time. So from the outcasts and rejects of an ancient world, the Jerusalem church, there sprung the largest movement that history has ever seen and is continuing to see. The first church also became the first megachurch. There's 3,000 people who are part of this church. What in the world? That's insane. How does it even work out? I have no idea how they worked that out. But today, there's over 2 billion Christians, one-third of everyone who lives, and it has grown more than three times since 1910. More than three times over since 1910. That's crazy. Here's a graph to kind of get the idea. Uh, since 1900, this is a graph of practicing Christians as a percentage of total world population. So it took 18 centuries for practicing Christians to go from 0% to 2.5% by the year 1900. If we think spiritual growth is slow, like in our time, like, you know, we have no idea. 
and we, you know, that's not something we can moan about. After 1900, though, what did that look like? Over 70 years to grow from 25 to 5% in 1970, and then just 40 years to grow from 5% to 12% in 2010. So today, there is one practicing Christian for every seven people worldwide. And these are people who are either not believers or people who are just kind of say they're Christians but don't um, kind of uh, have their lives revolve around that. That's one in seven people. Here is maybe another perspective of what that looks like. This is the ratio of people who aren't believers or people who are kind of Christians in name only to people who practice the faith. This is from uh, AD 100. Yeah, using the laser pointer. Um, so this is 360 people to one Christian in AD 100. And it's obviously it's going down, it's going down, it's going down till today. Seven people to one Christian. Seven people who aren't believers to one. So the church's mission that others would hear Jesus' words and experience his family, that task is diminishing. Now, of course, there's still like loads of work to be done. It's not like we should stop or anything. But God is in control. God is directing his mission, regardless of whatever else we might hear. He's on the move. And we may not see it in our immediate context. We don't see it right in front of our eyes. But now there are more Christians than there ever were, not just in total population, but percentage-wise. And we get to be a small part of that as we join God's global mission. And just as an example of what that small part looks like, we're part of a church planting network. Um, church planting just means starting a new church uh, network called Acts 29. The reason why it's called Acts 29 is if you look at the end of Acts in your Bible, you say, oh, there is no chapter 29 of Acts, because it ends in 28, because we are the 29th chapter of Acts, is kind of the thing. That's how they do it. Um, so uh, this is uh, a bit of kind of how they started. This is like such a small little piece of a small little piece of a small little piece of Christendom. Like this is like nothing. Um, but in the year 2000, I don't know if you can see the graph in there. It's a bit washed out. Um, basically, you see it's a good trend to go up. Um, the year 2000 is roughly around when Acts 29 started. I think in 03 there was like maybe 12 churches. Um, uh, today, or in, in 2003... Sorry, yeah, 2003, there were 12 churches. Today, there's 740 churches, over six continents, with another 149 churches probably joining this year, and behind them, another 350 new church plants behind them as well. And these are all, this is not just like a Western thing, this is a global thing. That's, that's one small thing that we get to be a part of as Redeemer. But this first church, you know, this first small group of people, they helped spark a global movement. Think of what it must have looked like in the early days. They didn't have a pub to meet in. They had nowhere to meet in. In fact, if they met and the, the authorities found out, they'd get thrown in prison. They're fearful of the government, but God is at work. And we get to look back at the Jerusalem church and see what God has done. What might the future look like for us as a church? Not just in like next year, but 15, 20, 100, 200 years. What does Redeemer look like? How could Redeemer help be a part of serving Charlton over that time? How can we help continue to push back the darkness as we spark a movement for Jesus, not just in our city, but in Europe and the rest of the world? And as we look back, we are a church plant from Jerusalem. We do the same things. All those things I listed, that's what Redeemer does. The very same thing that's happened 2,000 years ago. But then we look forward and we get to join in with God's mission as he continues to call people to himself. Through him directing his mission, we get to grow in, like, our own, in our own lives. And like the early church, we will be able to send out others who will do the same. Even now, we help support other church plants, ones in Italy at the moment, um, and Lord willing, in the near future, we'll be able to plant as well. Now, we get to both be looking back and looking forward to, to those things because in the present, we're devoted to God, we're devoted to each other, and we rely on God to direct his mission. 
Now, we want more people devoting themselves to God because that's how it, how it means to be a human fully alive. And we devote ourselves to God because he devoted himself to us and to our flourishing first. And this is how God starts movements, not from big, massive explosions or small things, from nine people sat around a table to 20 or so people in the first story of a pub. A global movement that we get to be a part of is calling people out of the darkness into his light and into his life. Let me pray.